Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. I'm coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Garland Nixon is off today. For the next two hours, I will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. The Global Times has an op-ed entitled, If Pelosi Goes to Taiwan, It Will Be a Huge Historic Mistake for Washington. It opens as follows. The Financial Times on Tuesday said U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi would take a delegation to Asia in August, including the Taiwan Island, citing the so-called people familiar with the situation. If the news is true and the trip happens, it will be one of the most egregious provocations by the U.S. to China on the Taiwan question since the establishment of diplomatic relations between China and the U.S. For insight into this, Let's turn to my first guest. He's a writer and professor of East Asian and global history at New Mexico State University, Dr. Ken Hammond. As always, Ken, welcome back. I'm glad to be here today. This is uh, an important moment. So the op-ed continues. It must be clearly pointed out that there is no room for ambiguity and deception in regard of the one China principle. Chinese state counselor and defense minister Wei Fang's lines in this respect at the uh, Shangri-La Dialogue in Singapore last month are still powerful and ringing. China will definitely realize its reunification, and those who pursue Taiwan independence in an attempt to split China will definitely come to no good end, and foreign interference is doomed to fail. Your thoughts, Dr. Ken Hammond? Well, this uh, this, uh, this idea that uh, the Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives, the third person in succession to the presidency, is going to make a uh, an official visit to the island of Taiwan uh, can't be seen as anything other than a willful provocation by the United States uh, towards China. Uh, you know, the, the official position, the legally obligated position of the American government is that there's one China, Taiwan is part of China. This is goes back to the Shanghai communique in 1972 and it was reiterated in two further later agreements. These are bilateral binding agreements between our two countries. And, uh, you know, we have seen it's been the pattern for a while now that the American government from time to time, including President Biden, will make formal statements, formal commitments that, oh, of course, we respect the, the, the joint communiques and we understand the one China policy and principle. Uh, but then the behavior the actual behavior, you know, uh, not not what they say, but what they do, uh, just runs totally contrary to that. And it, uh, you know, whether it's the provocations in the South China Sea or sailing American naval vessels through the Taiwan Strait, which is clearly the territorial waters of China, uh, you know, they, they, they simply behave in ways that go totally counter to the official position uh, that, that recognizes uh, that there's only one China. For the Speaker of the House to go and make this kind of visit, this is this in some ways it's kind of a shocking provocation, and I think there's no question that this is going to be viewed very, very badly uh, by China, and that uh, it's going to only make an already fraught situation that much more difficult 
to to move beyond. You know, we need to find ways to de-escalate. We need to find ways to find cooperative uh, paths to the future with China. Uh, and this kind of uh, this kind of action by Speaker Pelosi is just it's reckless. It's irresponsible and it's very dangerous. What does she bring to the conversation? I, I mean, when I think of the various uh, U.S. government officials that could take a trip like this, her name is not at the top of the list. She She's not running for president, in, I don't think, in 2024. So her trying to demonstrate some kind of international foreign policy bona fides, to me, doesn't, doesn't come to the top of the list. So what— do you have any insight into, of all the people, why would Nancy Pelosi pick up the stick and swat the hornet's nest? Well, I think there may be a few reasons. Uh, I mean, Pelosi has a, you know, her entire career has been a a, a quite vociferous uh, anti-communist. She, she was hostile to the Soviet Union. She has said uh, terrible things about other socialist states, about socialism as a as a movement. She is, uh, you know, she, she's been very, very dedicated to her anti-communist uh, credentials. So obviously this is, you know, another opportunity to, to, to sort of have a poke in the eye for, uh, for China. Uh, and I think that's, that's certainly one motivation. She, um, you know, she's at the end of a long career. She's 83, I think, now and, and you know, probably going to wrap things up at some point. So she may see this as some sort of capstone gesture of, uh, of you know, Jumping on the the anti-China bandwagon here, I'm I'm a little surprised given her constituency in California, which includes a lot of people who are uh, you know of Chinese ancestry, mm-hmm. recent more recent immigrants, who are very much concerned about the relationship between the U.S. and China. In some ways, she this is kind of a slap in the face to those people as well. But I think her her perspective is very much on on national politics. I'm sure she's anxious about. The prospects of, uh, of the Democrats in the in the midterm elections, and I think she probably is thinking of this as some sort of headline grabber that's going to, you know, ratchet up the um, you know the foreign policy uh, uh, perspective on on the on the Democratic Party. I don't think that's a very wise move on her part, but uh, that might be part of her calculus as well. It's as I say, I, I see it as a very reckless and irresponsible move, but she must have her political motivations. Certainly, it's not a concern for the well-being of the Chinese people on either side of the strait, because this only makes things more dangerous for them. But, uh, you know, she's she's pursuing her own political agenda. And that, unfortunately, is uh, is one that uh, I don't think is is very helpful. The uh, Chinese military, uh, their spokesperson, Colonel Xi Yi, has accused the U.S. of fresh provocations today after the U.S. publicized a warship's transit through the Taiwan Strait for the sixth time this year. Uh, I think one can only sit back and, and look at China up to this point and applaud them for restraint. But one, again, has to ask the question, how much more can we expect them to endure? Well, I think that, unfortunately, the uh, the attitude of the American political elites across the spectrum, both both major parties, uh, is is just to keep poking China in the hopes that I don't know China may may uh, you know respond uh, uh, in in a, in, a, in a way that that validates the American uh, narrative. Uh, I quite agree; they have been remarkably restrained. 
uh, you know, obviously they've, there's been a lot of, uh, of, uh, of condemnation of the American moves, but in terms of actually taking any kind of, of direct action, the Chinese have been, have been marvelously restrained, have conducted themselves like, like mature individuals, which we certainly can't say about American foreign policy. Uh, but, you know, I, as I say, it's a, it's a very, very dangerous situation. And, and the, the cavalier attitude of American politicians towards this is just, it's just appalling. Uh, and, uh, you know, I don't know where it goes from here. This, this is, in some ways, politically, this is one of the most provocative things that could be done. Uh, and so I, I, I don't know what, uh, what the Yanks have in mind to ratchet things up further. But uh, all indications are that, they, that they're not, uh, not thinking very seriously about trying to pull back from the brink. That takes me to my next question, which is, what do you see as being the winning objective here or the perception of win from the United States side for for continuing to do this? When you when you look at the amount of American debt that China holds, when you look at the supply chain issue that China could uh, contributes to and controls so so greatly. When you look at the peer-to-peer or head-to-head uh, military confrontation between the two, there's no clear victor here. In fact, many would put money on China winning a confrontation with the United States. So this, to me, if I can use a, an, an example, this is like the guy on the air, airplane that kept messing with Mike Tyson. And and then Mike Tyson just came over to came over the top of the seat and pounded the guy. I mean, th- there seems to be no win here. So, other than domestic muscle flexing, what's the upside? Where's the win? Yeah, no, I, I quite agree. I think that uh, that uh, most of this rhetoric, most of this posturing, is directed at domestic politics uh, or at an audience, perhaps uh, in Europe. You know. It's 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 all part of of much bigger you know sort of macro geopolitical issues and concerns and transformations taking place in the world, but these these politicians uh, you know they they're they're of course American politicians are always focused on the next electoral cycle, uh, on raising more money, getting their their billionaire donors to give them more money for policies that uh, you know that they think are going to. Uh, gonna gonna sell, and and it's just it's a it's a short-sighted, dysfunctional uh, way to try to organize government for one of the one of the more powerful countries in the world. I don't think that there is a win uh, to be had in terms of actually provoking military conflict with China. It would be devastating for Taiwan. Uh, you know, the idea that oh, we're going to do something to help out Taiwan. This would be devastating for Taiwan. It would be it would cause tremendous damage uh, to China itself, and it would have a very very negative impact on uh, on the American economy and on the livelihoods of American people. If such a conflict could be you know you know contained. Uh, below the nuclear level, if it should, you know, trip over into that, well, then, you know, we're into a, we're into just global devastation. And I think that, that it's, that's why it's so irresponsible and reckless of politicians, especially now Speaker Pelosi, to, to make this kind of gesture, to make this kind of move without really, I think, taking the possible consequences as seriously as they, as they need to be taken. This is, I believe, so, irresponsible and reckless that you even have the likes of Henry Kissinger 
warning Biden, and this is from Bloomberg, warning Biden against endless confrontation with China. Former U.S. Secretary of State Kissinger said geopolitics today requires Nixonian flexibility to help diffuse conflicts between the U.S. and China, as well as between Russia and the rest of Europe. While warning that China shouldn't become a global hegemon, the man who helped reestablish U.S.-China ties in the 70s said that President Joe Biden should be wary of letting domestic politics interfere with the importance of understanding the permanence of China. There are a number of takeaways to me from that statement. One is that when he talks about letting domestic politics interfere, to me, he's saying, uh, Joe, you're listening to the wrong crowd. Well, it's interesting because there have been, you know, some signals uh, coming out of Washington or coming out of the foreign policy establishment, which suggest that uh, that actually there are there are perhaps significantly divergent positions within the the foreign policy, uh, uh, you know, making circles. And I certainly think that the military uh, although, you know, they're they're happy to, to trot out the rhetoric of, you know, we're prepared to get the job done. Uh, but they have some real concerns uh, about that job and about what the consequences of uh, of conflict with China would be. And I think that uh, that there are there are conflicting opinions, even within the Biden administration itself, uh, over how best to to go forward with uh, with the relationship with China. And I, and I, I find that to be. Uh, I don't know. On the one hand, I suppose it should be encouraging that at least some people have a have a slightly calmer perspective. But on the other hand, it, it suggests that there isn't really a coherent policy. And that means that that things can vacillate in ways that might cross the line into into, you know, really very, very much more serious uh, missteps. For someone with the stature of Henry Kissinger to make a statement like this. I haven't seen him on the mainstream news programs such as CNN, MSNBC. I haven't I don't I haven't seen him making the Sunday circuit. Does that say anything? Oh, first of all, have you seen him cuz I may have just missed him? And if I'm right, does that does does his lack of visibility send a message? Well, he does have a certain lack of visibility, given you know, given the, the prestige he has in mainstream circles and all that. Uh, I do think it's interesting that that he doesn't pop up um, in uh, you know in 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 sort of popular, not just popular discourse, but in in the the, the chatter that goes on in mm-hmm. political circles uh, anywhere near as much as one would think, especially given you know what at this point <laughs> can be seen as as somewhat controversial statements on his part regarding China. Uh, you know, just because they're relatively calm and rational, right. uh, you know. So, yeah, I, I do think it's surprising that uh, that his his voice, I, you know, we can't say his voice is silenced, but, you know, sometimes uh, just sort of ignoring it uh, is uh, certainly much more effective than than any kind of real effort to, 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 to muzzle him. We have two minutes left. There's a piece in Orinoco Tribune for the CIA. It's better to assassinate insurgent leaders than jail them. Uh, today on uh, Nelson Mandela Day, WikiLeaks published a review of the CIA's high-value target program uh, and this whole idea about assassinating leaders. Uh, your thoughts, Dr. Ken Hammond? Well, <laughs> unfortunately, uh, this idea of, of uh, you know, the, that the, the, 
the the, the intelligence uh, community, the, the the dark world, whatever I don't know what, how we want to characterize it, but that you know these clandestine activities that go on that somehow. Uh, you know, reaching out and, and assassinating people. Uh, this is a uh, this is conduct the U.S. has engaged in, you know, forever and a day, really. And I don't think it's surprising uh, to find that uh, that this continues to be sort of the option of choice. It's uh, you know, it's not just that it uh, obviously is an, an effective way to silence someone, but it feeds into the whole mentality, the whole sort of macho mentality of American policy in general, this idea that we run the world and we can go out and, and do whatever we please, including taking out people that we find to be problematic, totally on the basis of our own self-serving interests, you know. So uh, it's, it's a sad report. It's a sad commentary that this is still such a, such a, a practice, but uh, it, it's in many ways hardly surprising. Dr. Ken Hammond, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Always glad to be here. Thanks, Ken. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. RT reports UK inflation hits 40-year high. Consumer prices rose 9.4% in June amid the worsening cost of living crisis. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's an associate professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, former president of the National Economics Association. Dr. Linwood Tahid, as always, sir, welcome back. Thank you. So inflation in Britain accelerated at a faster pace than expected in June and hit 9.4% year on year, the highest increase since February of 82, according to the data released by the Office for National Statistics. As an economist, talk about the practical implications of this historic inflation rate, uh, especially in the context of many of these causes are self-inflicted. Well, yes. I mean, they are obviously, absolutely self-inflicted, at least partially self-inflicted, or, or, or because of the sanctions against Russia on energy and food. And, and those are the two sectors that are leading in, in inflation. Uh, energy costs were up 15.2%. Um, uh, food costs were up 9.8% in, in the U.K., and so they're leading this inflation, and just you know, as a coincidence, there are sanctions against Russian uh, energy and against uh, imports of Russian food, uh, grain, and so forth. So, so that part is self-inflicted. Of course, the other part of it that that's self-inflicted is the, uh, the the climate crisis that's causing a shortfall in food production around the world and and in Europe also. That, that that's also self-inflicted, but but not as near-term as as the uh, sanctions on 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 Russia, and uh, you know with with the UK seeing these kinds of of, of this kinds of inflation, uh, the European Central Bank, uh, the, or the Bank of England, uh, has been raising uh, interest rates not quite as aggressively as the U.S. has been, 
raising interest rates, but but it doesn't seem to make a difference that we're seeing pretty similar inflation rates in the UK, 9.4%, and in the US, 9.1%. And so it, it seems to, to indicate that raising interest rates is not what's going to bring inflation down. It's having almost no effect. And as we've talked about many uh, for a long time on this, this is a supply problem, not a demand problem, which interest rates are, are uh, um, uh, designed to affect. Let me ask you this, Dr. Tawheed, because, you know, we talk about the here and now we see that, uh, you know, the German economy in particular was, um, you know, set up to work off of cheap Russian energy. They've got a steady supply of cheap energy that allows them to know to, you know, to understand exactly what their production costs will be. And boom, they can they can make, you know, turn a profit. Now, in the event that this uh, cheap or at least a fairly inexpensive um, supply of energy is cut off or cut down or the price is going up as it is, is there a point when this reverses itself? What I'm saying is this looks like the future for Germany. 25% of the um, economy, of the economic engine for the EU, this looks like the future, that that model is dead. That's what I'm saying. And if that model is dead, doesn't that mean that Germany's economy is dead? Well, you know, the, the, the Russians were very happy to supply cheap gas and oil to, to Europe. They've got vast supplies of it. They were, they were, uh, it's, and it's not their only export as for example, Saudi Arabia's uh, major and only export is oil. Russia uh, has, has lots of other things that it can export, including uh, manufacturing goods. So it, it was, it was uh, happy to, to, uh, to provide cheap oil and gas to Europe. Um, now, uh, what the Europeans have to have to, uh, I guess, plan on, if they're going to maintain these sanctions, is getting cheap oil and gas as cheap as it can be to another source like India, for example, which is importing vast amounts of very inexpensive, even discounted Russian gas and oil, and then reselling that on the open market at a at a, at a much higher price. So, so Europe can get high, can get gas and oil. They just have to pay more for it. And they have they have to be willing if they're going to maintain these sanctions to get it from from uh, countries that have relationships with with Russia. We call, we call those cutouts. Now uh, that's that's what's happening, uh, but it, but it's but it's not happening um, uh, quickly enough. And then the EU and, and and the US is is trying to put a cap on Russian oil, which won't be a cap on Russian oil. It'll be a cap on, on oil coming from Russia through India, and 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 that's not going to work either. So, so either either the, the EU maintains these sanctions and suffers uh, uh, shortages and high prices, or it finds a way to eliminate these sanctions. But but Russia is 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 still selling oil, and they're happy to sell it cheaply. But but if they're sanctioned, then that's a different story. Isn't there also an issue not only in terms of uh, capacity or volume, but sulfur content and the ability to process what you get? So very similar to what I understand happens uh, with oil that's re- – there's only certain types of oil that can be refined in Texas, for example, because of the sulfur content and the processes that are necessary to refine that oil. So same problem in Germany. 
And so it's not just as simple as finding another supply. It's a matter of finding another supply that is similar in sulfur content to the type that the Russians are providing, or else you have to rebuild your refineries. Right, yeah. The Russians are not only providing lots of oil, but they're providing oil with with low sulfur content. And uh, therefore, the refining of it is minimal if, if there's any refining that needs to be done at all. Uh, gas, of course, is, is coming purely through the pipeline to, to Germany, and, 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 uh, and so that doesn't need to be refined at all. So it, now, if you're, if you're going to try to get that oil, Russian oil, or excuse me, non-Russian oil, from somewhere else that has a high sulfur content, like, for example, Venezuelan oil, mm-hmm. then, then you have to then refine that. And, and Europe, Europe has very, very few refineries because it's been getting very clean Russian oil. Uh, and so it's not like you can just buy any oil from anywhere. You have to, they, they have to get oil from Russia, even if it's through cutouts. Uh, and, and that's what they're doing, uh, even though they're, they're complaining that, um, that, that Putin is, that this is Putin's fault uh, for all of these high prices and, and lack of oil. In fact, I think they call it sweet crude is the term for right. the. Yeah, yeah Brent, Brent sweet, sweet crude. Is is the uh, I guess the highest uh, mm-hmm. quality of oil. Oilprice.com is reporting Germany's chemicals industry risks shutdown amid gas shortage. And they're basically saying that their chemical industry, they are the biggest consumer, the largest consumers of um, gas and that they are possible they may have to shut down. And now it says they risk a shutdown uh, amid shortage, which again, it implies that, well, at some point, everything's gonna straighten itself out and then we'll get going again. But very recently, Olaf Scholz, the uh, German chancellor, whatever he is, said, even after the Ukrainian, when and if the Ukrainian um, crisis ends, they're gonna maintain the sanctions in place. So to me, when I hear uh, like one of the biggest industries industries in Germany, the um, fallout from these industries, such as all of the companies that supply goods to these industries, the people that buy things that work there, if these huge industries close down, then and all of the other countries in Europe that need the chemicals from these countries in order to keep operating. So it becomes like a like a an octopus where the tentacles of this company would probably have or these companies would probably have devastating effects throughout Europe. Dr. Tahi. Yeah, this is a this is a vicious downward spiral that that only multiplies. It only gets worse uh, the further it goes. Uh, you know, Germany, Germany, Germany is the largest economy in, in, in the EU. France is the second largest. And those economies are being hard hit by uh, the lack of energy or the increased prices for energy. Uh, and uh, as those economies falter, then the EU goes into recession and I would dare say depression. Now, if you, I, I, I doubt that European citizens are going to simply say, well, you know, we'll follow Olaf Schultz uh, into a depression because, you know, uh, we, we have to maintain this, even if there's an end to the Ukrainian war. Uh, this, this sounds like madness. It's, it's, it, it, it's flailing. And I don't expect that the Germans or the, the French or other uh, um, citizens in the EU are going to continue to allow this to occur. Uh, change of government, as we said before, happens can happen very quickly in the EU with votes of no confidence and, and changes in, in the parliament leading to a new, new, new prime ministers and presidents. 
and and so I I would expect that the Europeans are going to respond to this with uh, saying that that this has gone too far. Although I, I could be wrong, and maybe they're 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 uh, going to commit mass suicide. What's the permanence of so much of this? Once you start shutting down industries, it's not like turning on and off a light switch. So I, I would think that there are going to be there's a, a sense of permanence for some of these uh, for some of these industries. We, we have two minutes. Well, yeah, I I I, I think that uh, you know for the the major in, industries in in um, in Germany, uh, chemical manufacturing and and heavy machinery manufacturing, you know those plants if they're shut down they'll they'll still be there if they can get the energy to run them, uh, they can get back back to work. But 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 on the other hand, uh, some of the uh, the, the least lesser developed uh, countries in the EU uh, will have a very difficult time uh, getting their particular industries up and running again. I would expect that you'll 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 possibly have uh, mass migration, uh, uh, not just from 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 you know, tr- traditionally you know African countries or, or Middle Eastern countries into Europe. Uh, you'll you'll have mass migration through Europe. As well, England, on the other hand, is has uh, because of Brexit is not is not part of that process, and I think when things begin to shut down in England, they will be uh, more difficult to get started because they're more isolated. Dr. Linwood Tahid, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. Sputnik International has a piece entitled, West Came to Global Preeminence Through Robbery of Other Peoples, Has No Model of the Future. The West owes its global preeminence in large part to its historic plunder of other peoples around the world and has no model of development to offer others, according to Russian President Vladimir Putin. For insight into this assessment, we turn to our next guest. He holds the John Jay and Rebecca Moore's Chair of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston. He's one of the most prolific writers of our time. His latest book is entitled The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery, Jim Crow, and the Roots of American Fascism. Dr. Gerald Horn, as always, Dr. Horn, welcome back. Thank you for inviting me. So Putin says, based on the illusion of exclusivity, this model divides people into first and second class status and is therefore racist and neocolonial in its essence. And the globalist supposedly liberal ideology which underlies it is increasingly acquiring the features of totalitarianism, holding back creative pursuit, free historical creation. Again, that's President Putin. Uh, Dr. Horn, in in analyzing speeches like this, I, I would always tell my students to consider the audience and that there can be more than one audience being addressed in a particular speech. When I listen to the likes of President Putin and, and Foreign Minister Lavrov, I get the impression they're talking to the world. 
I get the impression I'm listening to men who have serious understandings of history, their cultures, and their interests. When I listen to Biden and Blinken and even U.S. Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield, I always get the sense they're talking to themselves. They're talking to each other, and they're only really talking for domestic consumption and that they, that they believe their own press clippings. Your thoughts, Dr. Gerald Horn? Well, certainly those quoted remarks and that the piece you just referenced, it's obvious. Uh, the fact that here we are, men of African descent sitting here in North America, our very presence here is emblematic of the point that President Putin was making. Uh, that is to say, product of the unlamented African slave trade, which went on for centuries, one of the ma- ma- most massive uh, migrations in human history, involuntary, of course, that led to centuries of free labor that helped to develop not only the United States of America, but also its parent, uh, speaking of Great Britain. And speaking of Great Britain, uh, how can you speak of Great Britain and its rise to preeminence without talking about what used to be referred to as British India? Uh, That is to say, not only India proper, but what is today Pakistan, uh, what is today uh, Sri Lanka, what is today uh, Bangladesh, uh, what is today Burma, for example. And we also should not forget the looting and plundering of China, certainly the Chinese have not forgotten it, is symbolized by the presence of the former British colony that is Hong Kong, now part of the People's Republic of China. So uh, what's really just unfortunate and disappointing is that that remark by President Putin is the height of obviousness. (laughs) But sadly and tragically, it will be viewed in certain quarters in the North Atlantic camp as a slap in the face, as an insult, and as utterly provocative. That, to me, is the problem. There's a piece in the cradle, India, Russia, Iran, Eurasia's new transportation powerhouses. No longer just an alternative route on a drawing board. The international north-south transportation corridor is paying dividends in a time of global crisis. And Moscow, Tehran, and New Delhi are now leading players in the Eurasian competition for transportation routes. Uh, Your thoughts on this whole evolution. And this really seems to be one of the other elements in terms of this whole uh, development of this of this region uh, at the expense of the United States? Well, that particular article needs to be seen in the context of President Putin's recent visit to Iran. You might have seen the front page of the Wall Street Journal with his embracing the supreme leader and also the pictures of him embracing President Raisi, not to mention President Erdogan of Turkey. I think that that triumphal visit of President Putin, which apparently will lead to Iran supplying uh, drones uh, to Russia, uh, which apparently has led to the inking of a multi-billion dollar contract for Russia to help Iran develop its vast gas fields, it needs to be seen in juxtaposition of what is universally viewed as a failed visit to that part of the world by President Joseph R. Biden, 
and his now infamous fist bump with Crown <laughs> Prince Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia, uh, where he went on bended knee to try to get the Saudis to pump more oil, although it's unclear if the Saudis have the capacity to do so, or even if they did, they would be willing to break their de facto alliance with Russia. And so what we should realize if we were to step back for a moment and look at this uh, situation from 30,000 feet is that we're witnessing a gradual but discernible shift in the global correlation of forces. To refer to the previous article, those nations that got fat on colonialism and the plunder of the Americas and the African slave trade, time has caught up with them. And you see a new international situation developing. You see this also if you juxtapose the so-called G7 meeting in Germany led by Mr. Biden with the BRICS meeting hosted by the People's Republic of China. With the BRICS meeting, you saw an application by both Argentina and Iran to join the BRICS. And then you have observers from Senegal, Ethiopia, Fiji, and nations too numerous to mention. And so I think that it's well past time to recognize that time is not on the side of U.S. imperialism nor its allies, and they would be well advised to cut their losses, not least with regard to this disaster in Ukraine, which bids fair to sink the entire German economy, as Berlin is suggesting that people take two-minute showers. I'm not sure if you want to stick your nose into that issue. <laughs> and also uh, turn down the heat in their abodes. And so this will also have meaning, I'm afraid to say, for the domestic situation in the United States of America, because history tells us that when opportunities are constricted abroad, that repression surges at home. We have just about a minute and a half left, and you mentioned Joe Biden's trip to Saudi Arabia. What do you see as Saudi Arabia and uh, the UAE's motivations in terms of strengthening ties and relations with Israel? Is that due to the uh, anticipated withdrawal of the U.S. from the region and the fear that resistance forces uh, will overtake them and that they're trying to they're trying to formulate as good of a relationship with Israel as they can to offset what they perceive to be the, the rise of, of uh, resistance forces? We have about a minute and a half. I think that there is something to that. Obviously, these monarchies, these Gulf despots, uh, they're living on borrowed time. Uh, they may ironically need to call upon the Israelis to save their skin because of their anti-popular policies. However, on the other hand, I do expect Saudi Arabia to try to improve its relations with Iran, which further undercuts U.S. imperialism, which only has to offer its military. It has little to offer beyond that. And I think as well that that will be undercutting for Israel as well. Uh, perhaps as a result, the Israeli lobby will see fit in the United States to spend less time trying to destabilize congressional races, such as the one in Maryland involving Donna Edwards, <laughs> and more time trying to help the Israeli leadership uh, rethink 
their disastrous policies. Dr. Gerald Horn, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you. You're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Common Dreams has a piece entitled, Lies Against Our Democracy. Lula rips Bolsonaro's speech to diplomats. Quote, he's not afraid of the electronic voting machine, the leftist presidential frontrunner said of Bolsonaro. He's afraid of the Brazilian people. For some analysis of this and some other issues, let's turn to our next guest. Uh, He's a published book author, two-time Pulitzer Prize finalist with more than 20 years of journalistic experience, former Washington Post bureau chief and award-winning foreign correspondent on two continents, John Jeter. As always, John, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So Brazilian presidential frontrunner Luis Ignacio Lula da Silva yesterday accused the current president, Jair Bolsonaro, of lying 20 times during a meeting with international diplomats in which the far-right incumbent repeated his baseless attacks on the integrity of the nation's election system. John, how Trumpian is this? Uh, And it's, I think it's important for people to, to understand that Trump's former advisor, Steve Bannon, who claimed that their mission was to disrupt the administrative state, was a advisor to Bolsonaro right after Trump got into office. So to ask the question, how Trumpian is this, I don't think is a stretch. John Jeter. Uh, You know, we can really look at Brazil as... Uh, a a mirror image of the United States. Or to to put it another way, we could really look at sort of a a, a triumvirate of the sort of racial, um, uh, racialized um, uh, republics, hair-invoked republics, the United States, Brazil, and apartheid South Africa, which even now in its current democratic iteration is still very similar to the United States and its political economy. And, and so, you know, that Bolsonaro is a mini-me for Trump is almost uh, irrefutable, right? Like he, but, but what's even more interesting to me, Wilmer, is that it's not just that Bolsonaro is Trump's mini-me, but that the same political and social factors that produced Donald Trump produced Jair Bolsonaro. The big difference being that there are more blacks in Brazil than any country outside of Africa, any country except for Nigeria, I believe. Uh, They imported, I think, 10 times as many slaves as did the United States. And so um, what is fascinating to me um, is what's happening in Brazil, what's going to happen with this election. Uh, Truly, there's no voter fraud in Brazil, and there never has been, uh, or at least certainly not in modern times, and there's been no complaints about that. But of course, um, 
Bolsonaro, I'm sure, as dumb as he is, can read a poll. I'm sure the polls show that um, uh, Lula is defeating him handily in the election. Um, and the remaining question, I think, well, there's a couple. One, of course, is, uh, you know, uh, just what kind of countermeasures might uh, Bolsonaro uh, and possibly the United States take to keep um, uh, Lula from taking office. But the other is, you know, what direction would Lula take as president in this which would be, I think, his third term, right uh, uh, after he was um, after he left office uh, in 2013, I think 2012. Um, and, and you know, during the pink tide years, the, the the first years of the pink tide, when Argentina and Venezuela and Bolivia and Ecuador were sort of rising, the socialist tide was rising. Um, Lula took a very different tack. He took sort of a third way, a more moderate way. And, there, and the rest of the, of the hemisphere, the rest of the, uh, the Americans was very conscious of that. I suspect, I don't know, I've never had a conversation with Lula. I don't speak very good Portuguese. Uh, I suspect that Lula um, will, will, will skew left. I hear that in his speeches more and more where he, he realized that taking that sort of moderate approach did not help and probably hurt in terms of building a movement. And so I hear in Lula's, um, almost every word he utters these days, I hear a man who is convinced that he's going to take office, who is, who is determined to take office and to correct the mistakes of the past. And that means uh, building, I don't know what he would call it, but building a more socialist Brazil. And so this is to me, uh, this is almost as fascinating as sort of the, the 2024 race in the United States, maybe even more so. You know, John, I'm glad you mentioned, uh, you know, the, the parallels between the U.S. and um, and Brazil, because the, the thing I've always said about Donald Trump is this. Donald Trump didn't come into American politics or American culture. He came out of American politics and American culture. He was produced by American politics and American culture. So in 2016, the Democrats lost and they said, we didn't lose. It was stolen from us by the Russians and whoever, uh, Comey, I don't know, whoever, right? Every any, any and everybody they could, they didn't lose. 2020, Trump says, no, well, certainly I didn't lose. It was mail-in votes. It was, uh, you know, uh, ballots in trunks. It was blah, blah, blah. So in the neoliberal world, nobody loses anymore. So it makes sense that Jair Bolsonaro would look to the North and say, well, if no none of the parties lose there, then I don't lose either. So no matter what happens, there was shenanigans. I don't have the Russians to blame, blah, blah, whoever. It was somebody. And that's to me the where ne- the instability of the neoliberal world now is that even the political entities cannot agree on a winner or a loser. Your thoughts? Yeah, no, I agree. I agree 100 percent. Uh, the 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 lack of imagination, the failure of imagination of this sort of white settler colonial state. Right. Uh, as articulated, particularly by the far right, Donald Trump, um, Jair Bolsonaro, uh, their failure to articulate uh, a vision for their countrymen that inspires them and and that gets the people out to vote for them at the polls is just so jarring, right? And so, you know, they they come up with the same excuses, you know, election fraud. You know, I I will admit, and I'm no fan of Trump, I'm no fan of Biden, but I was a little suspicious at first that Biden could muster enough votes, more votes than any presidential candidate 
in U.S. history. But, you know, looking back at it, you know, that's just a reflection of how deeply unpopular uh, Donald Trump was. Uh, I'm not sure it would be the same if there's a replay in 2024. But, uh, uh, you know, this this this. This is, uh, we've reached this point now, right, where the discourse is no longer about facts on the ground. It's about who can manufacture a more credible reality. Uh, or, failing that, who can enforce it with guns, right? <laughs> so this is where we are in the United States, and we see this with, you know, the Proud Boys and this far-right violence that's being um, perpetrated on the United States, particularly communities of color, vis-a-vis -vis Buffalo, vis-a-vis -vis, uh, Charleston. Um, and we're seeing it, of course, in Brazil, which, of course, has even much deeper problems in terms of state violence against people of color. Uh, I think, I believe there was the state of Rio de Janeiro by itself, state, not the city, has more uh, gun deaths, more uh, police deaths of police murders of blacks than the entire United States does in a year. At least I believe that was true at least a few years ago. I, I wouldn't imagine it's changed much uh, recently. And so, yeah, th you know, this is this. So everyone sort of retreated to their to their familiar corners. And, you know, they, they you know, we're shooting the, the usual suspects. Uh, so, yeah, it's uh, a complete lack of political imagination, complete failure of political imagination. Orinoco Tribune has a piece. U.S. Southern Command worried about China, Russia and RT in Latin America. The commander of the U.S. Central Command, General Laura Richardson, expressed her concern today about the activities of China and Russia in Latin America, while emphasizing that it is a region, quote, very rich in mineral resources, such as rare earths and lithium. Her comments were made during an interview with the Spanish edition of Voice of America, which is the U.S., state-owned international propaganda outlet. Uh, you know, it, 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 it's, it's laughable, but unfortunately, it is incredibly, incredibly serious uh, what she has to say, and not only th that these are her concerns, but why they are her concerns, because she obviously lives in a fictional world. It is laughable. I actually, when I first read this story, I thought it was a skit, like a, a an onion piece, satirical. You know, the the it's just amazing how self adoration doesn't lead to greater self awareness. And so all these crimes. What, what did what did James Baldwin say? Uh, you know, or I guess he was quoting uh, George Bernard Shaw. But you know, all criticism uh, is. Uh, autobiographical, right? Mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, well, you know, maybe I think you can make a case that China and Russia are interested in mineral wealth in uh, Latin America, particularly. Uh, um, and that would distinguish them from the United States. How? Well, the one way that, it, that they, you could distinguish them from the United States, Russia and China, is that they are not imperialists. They are capitalists and they are willing to pay a, an agreed upon price for these goods and services, as opposed to uh, organizing a coup and stealing it, which is the, the modus operandi for the United States. Uh, but apparently, you know, it has not occurred to uh, 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 Madam Richardson that, uh, you know, perhaps uh, there was a Cold War, you know, uh, and that the politics of the Cold War continues to this day. Uh, I just, I wonder what they're teaching the students at West Point these days, where you have someone so clueless 
to make such a a a uh, 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 a, a clueless remark about uh, geopolitical strategies and objectives. Uh, the other thing I think is, to me, maybe I'm off, to me, I see an inherent racism in this, you know, that, you know, it has been said that, you know, foreign policy is kind of an expression, U.S. foreign policy is an expression of white supremacy of racism. But the idea that you can say, look, the Latino people like this particular channel, they like this particular radio, this particular news channel, whatever the case may be, that's problematic. They're being misled. That implies that I have a greater intellect than they do because they don't know they're being misled because they're not smart enough, and I do. So it implies, A, that I have their best interest in mind, so much so that I should make decisions for them, and B, these poor little nimble-minded childlike peoples don't have the ability to know that they're being had, I got to look out for them. Your thoughts? Oh, no, no question about it. I, 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 um, I, was, I remember reading recently uh, 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 interviews, uh, interviews, street on the street interviews that uh, one of the news stations did during a, a disturbance, I think it was in Los Angeles, and the reporter asked this black guy, Who's participating in this riot, right? This this rebellion. Um, he's he's asking him, you know, have you been influenced by Russia or by by the Kremlin? And the and the brother says, I don't even know who that is, bro. I got to go. <laughs> so this this this, this, this sort of uh, 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 understanding of black people and indigenous people as pawns in you know this this uh, contest. Is uh, so such a a uh, uh, matter of hubris of, of vanity by uh, particularly the European settler, you know, uh, and, and, and it's so interesting too because it, it it fails to understand, you know, you you, you can say whatever you want. I, I know I don't know that I'm necessarily a fan of Putin, right? But you know, you realize that uh, Germany is talking about resorting to coal. They're talking about rationing their uh, energy because uh, uh, Russia is talking about uh, discussing, proposing, cutting off their supply. I think they supply almost 40 percent of Germany's energy. Uh, Putin has won this and he's won this contest, this proxy war in Ukraine. He's won it because he's a smarter individual. He's more engaged with the world because if you go to Iran, if you go to Argentina, if you go to South Africa, People, certainly privately, publicly, they might be a little bit reluctant because, of course, the United States is still, um, you know, the, the big man on campus. But privately, mm-hmm. they will certainly mm-hmm. tell you that they support Russia. They support Putin. They believe the United States uh, has has overplayed its hand and that they are in desperate trouble. And so this gets back, I think, to the, the primary feeling of certainly the, the United States and the West in general, which is this sort of uh, um intellectual hubris where they just talk to each other and they don't understand um, that there are people what, what's the what's the poem the south also exists mm-hmm. right well the, the the people of the south do exist they do right. think they do have their own opinions and, and and this war and you can call it whatever you want but this war and that's how most of the people of the south see it between the people who 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 built Latin America and the people who own Latin America is ongoing. It is escalating and people are tired of it. And so you see that 
uh, even in Chile, which is a mostly white country, you see in Argentina, which is also very white, but you also mm-hmm. see it in 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 uh, Bolivia right now, and Brazil, and 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 Ecuador, where the indigenous people are on the streets every day demanding that they finally own the country of their birth. You see this happening everywhere. You see it in, in South Africa now, where they're really starting mm-hmm. starting to see some some real escalation of tensions between. Uh, uh, the, the the wealthier blacks, with the, what few there are, okay. uh, and the working class blacks. And so there's this real tension that's rising everywhere in the world, and, and only in the United States do we fail to sort of recognize, at least our leadership fails to recognize that. John Jeter, as always, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate that analysis. Looking forward to having you back. Thank you, brother. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Haaretz reports Israeli reporter sneaks into Mecca, triggering outcry in Saudi Arabia and apologies in Israel. My first question when I read this was, what? And my second question was, other than provocation, why? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a broadcaster, analyst, and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon. Laith Marouf, as always, Laith, welcome back. Thank you for having me. Journalist Gil Tamari decided to enter Mecca, which is off limits to non-Muslims without permission, in search of an exclusive story for his news outlet. It was billed as a historic news scoop, the first Jewish-Israeli reporter to document the annual Muslim pilgrimage of Hajj on an unprecedented visit to the holy city of Mecca in Saudi Arabia. Both the reporter and his outlet, Channel 13, issued apologies, saying they didn't mean to offend, but defending the segment as an important journalistic accomplishment and great journalism. Laith Maroof, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, uh, it would be, I guess, great journalism if somebody dresses up as a Jewish person and sneaks into, quote-unquote, the Wailing Wall section and documents it as an anthropological look into the weird actions of other some other race. So this is what is being sold as freedom of speech and journalism in this age. But, you know, honest to God, this person wouldn't have been able to get into Mecca if the Saudi Wahhabi regime uh, didn't actually know about it and allow it. This is a a regime that uh, some of your listeners don't know, but In 1979, there was a coup attempt in Saudi Arabia where uh, the former emirs of the East Coast, the Shia emirs that existed where all the oil of Saudi Arabia was, occupied Mecca and uh, took it back from the Saud family. And the Saud regime needed to call in French and British uh, paratroopers to land on top of the Kaaba and massacre the uh, civilians. It was it was a bloodless, like, you know, occupation with no weapons into 
the 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 Kaaba uh, and the mosque in Mecca, and here you had the slaughter happen uh, where the well of Zamzam, the eternal waters, are being uh, mixed in with the boots of uh, French and American uh, paratroopers. So, of course, it is not a surprise that the Saud regime would allow an Israeli uh, quote-unquote journalist to enter the holy city of Mecca. Yeah, you know, one of the uh, big uh, events that happened recently, while Joe Biden went to, um, you know, went to the Middle East, but additionally, uh, Vladimir Putin was in Tehran. He met with the leaders of the Axis of Resistance, and he met with the um, with the Turk with the Turkish leaders. And um, the Iranians made a num- another state. One of the statements that was made was Iran Defense Minister um, Brigadier General Mohammad Reza Ashtani said the United States is seeking to create a unified Polar, polar and hierarchical world order, but independent countries and new poles of power in the world have challenged West Washington's hegemony. What do you think of the um, of the Putin meeting in Tehran, Putin Erdogan Raisi meeting in um, Tehran? I mean, this is a new era that was just uh, created. Uh, look, the Russian Gazprom uh, company signed a, a strategic deal with the Iranian petroleum company. Um, a $40 billion project to build a pipeline from Iran through Pakistan into India to feed the Indian market, uh, which is means, you know, this is now a complete integration of uh, Asia, Euro-Asia from China to Iran to Russia. This triangle, everything is in between it is going to be connected to it. Uh, And Iran is a cornerstone of this uh, new century that we are uh, seeing the uh, birth of. Uh, So uh, this is just one example of uh, the changes that we will see. Turkey being there, um, this comes at the same time as the Syrian military has restationed thousands of troops and machinery on the northern border uh, with uh, Turkey and the zones that it occupies after the Kurdish Contras finally learned their lesson and asked the Syrian military to take back all the northern borders. So now the only border that we see that uh, Syria hasn't secured is where the United States is occupying the east border with Iraq uh, and Turkey being there and uh, and signing on to a statement, Erdogan signing on to a statement um, guaranteeing the unity uh, of territory of Syria and the sovereignty of the state. Um, I think we may see Turkey withdrawing from the areas that it occupies very soon. Uh, look, all of this is clear indications that uh, any movement by the United States with its uh, vessels in the region, in the Gulf and or Israel to attack uh, Iran and or any of the uh, Axis of Resistance members is uh, going to be uh, faced with a solid uh, response. Um, And uh, this is going to change the whole game in Western Asia, especially with, as you mentioned, uh, Biden arriving into Saudi and not getting really much uh, from what he wanted, uh, while Iran and Russia and the whole axis of resistance, along with China and Russia, are are, uh, pushing forward with massive deals uh, that are changing uh, world economy, uh, shattering. Like there's no more, there will be no more trade between Russia and Iran 
uh, in uh, the dollar. It was going to be all in their national currencies. Uh, this is going to change uh, and shake even the uh, stay, you know, standing of the dollar on the international market. Understanding President uh, Turkish President Erdogan can be a bit inconsistent in his policies. Do you see that? Do do, do these latest actions give you a level of uh, of comfort that he's he's making he's taking a side now? Um, for example, do you do you see him reneging on his uh, statements about not allowing Finland and Sweden into NATO? Or do you see him now, has he, has he put his flag in a camp? I mean, look, uh, everybody's watching the members of uh, the old imperial order, uh, specifically on the edges of that order, like Turkey and the Saudis. Um, they are watching as uh, somebody like uh, Germany is collapsing. You know, to, now there's calls for rationing of gas and electricity in Europe. The state is the states in Europe are collapsing because of their sanctions over Russia. So, yeah, and everybody is watching as Russia and China and Iran, um, and this tri-fate, uh, building a new war order, and they're chugging uh, on, trucking on, uh, and you gotta either get on the train or it's going to leave you behind. And so I don't know, sometimes I, of course, still have all the mistrust of the Erdogan regime and the Saudi regime. But I wonder, uh, somebody who's a house slave and can, you know, only knows how to follow orders from a master, uh, when their master runs, do they run to a different master? Or do they think that they can stand by themselves. So I, I feel like maybe somebody like Erdogan are going to flip, um, but it's a big maybe. Uh, we'll see the how things roll out, and it will all depend on how punishing is the Americans of uh, their vessels as their vessels waver away from their control. Um, Orinoco uh, Tribune has an interesting article, interview with a representative of Ansar Allah. And the first thing I noticed when they asked them, you know, what were their goals? He says that their goal is to protect the land and honor from Saudi Emirati invasion and occupation. Explain, uh, you know, a, a bit more of what we need to know about An 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 Ansar Allah. Yes, I mean, Ansar Allah is uh, a legitimate national party in Yemen um, that uh, if you know the geography of Yemen, there's the mountain regions in uh, the uh, west and then there's the southern more, uh, you know, flatlands and, and desert uh, in the east and, uh, and the south. So the majority of the population lives in the mountain regions and they are mostly Shia. And the smaller portion of the population, around 20%, lives in the south, in the desert uh, areas that cannot sustain the population, obviously, and are um, mainly tribes that are Sunni. And so uh, the Saudis and the Emiratis have been occupying the south, which is two-thirds of the land, with just a, a small portion of the population, and has all the resources of oil and gas, and have been looting that diverting it and selling it on the international black market. 
that is why one of the many reasons that uh, the prices of gas and oil in the world are so deflated artificially. That in, you know, including of course the Iraqi, Syrian, and Libyan looted oil that, and gas that uh, the United States is siphoning off into the you know black hole of uh, CIA and and military action. Uh, uh, you know, the logistics. So Yemen is attempting to liberate its land, all the islands that are occupied in the Red Sea and the, and the, the uh, uh, strategic strait of Bab al-Mandib that, you know, one third of trade in the world goes through. Uh, that's all now being controlled by the Saudis, the Emiratis and the Israelis behind them. Based upon the ceasefire that was that was in place and now seems to uh, not be holding, how do you see this thing? Do, do you see it working itself out uh, and working itself out very very soon? Because when you read this this interview, uh, Ansar Allah is in it in it to win it. Oh yeah, I mean, like they have uh, paraded yesterday uh, some of their new uh, cruise winged missiles. Uh, that uh, can go as far as 3,000 kilometers. And uh, so this is basically covering uh, all even Palestine. Um, so they are ready uh, to take on the Saudi and Emirati regimes if they do not uh, end the siege on Yemen. Um, look, uh, I'm in my mind, I look at the battlefield in Yemen the battlefield in Lebanon and Syria and Iraq. And uh, I cannot keep up with which one is going to be the trigger for a regional war. These visits by Biden and Putin are to basically rearrange and strengthen all the alliances that are military and on the ground. Um, many things that we see in terms of the uh, events that play out in the media could be in themselves, um, you know, cover for things. So let's say that the uh, displeasure of the Saudis with the Americans and or the attempts by Erdogan to go to these meetings could be all just uh, psychological warfare and or strategic, uh, you know, cover for things behind. So I don't know if even the Saudis are going to waver from their alliance with the United States and Israel and or the Turks. Um, and a trigger in any of these uh, fronts will lead us to a regional war. We only got about a minute left. I did want to ask you real quick your thought. What's happening with the um, with the gas, uh, Lebanon gas and Hezbollah? We only got a minute. Oh, yeah, that's uh, definitely one of the main triggers. We're uh, coming close to the deadline that uh, Sayyid Hassan Nasrallah, the secretary general of Hezbollah, set. Uh, by the end of uh, August, if the uh, if the Lebanese uh, army and uh, state are not able to uh, you know get guarantees to extract their gas and oil from the fields and a stop to the looting of gas and oil in the disputed waters uh, by the Zionists, uh, there will be a military confrontation. So. We're looking right now at a four-year, a four-week, uh, you know, five-week window um, that uh, if none of, you know, that is guaranteed, we will see a confrontation. Mm -hmm. And uh, that clearly will spill over very fast into a regional confrontation. 
Laith Maroof, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Yeah, have a great evening. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Mint Press has a piece entitled, A History of Israeli Destruction of the Two-State Settlement. Since President Biden still insists that he is committed to the two-state solution, maybe we should take another poke at it. A fresh look cannot hurt at what has become the most common phrase in the discourse on Palestine and Israel. That's written by Miko Peled. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's an author and journalist working for peace and social justice. He writes extensively about U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East with a focus on Palestine. His latest book is entitled Settler Colonialism in Palestine and Kashmir. He's Robert Fantina. As always, Robert, welcome back. Thank you very much. Before we get to Miko's piece, because uh, I, I I think this is all related, uh, Haaretz reports Israeli reporter sneaks into Mecca, triggering outcry in Saudi Arabia and apologies in Israel. Um, for those who don't know, it is illegal for non-Muslims uh, without permission to enter into the holy city of Mecca. Uh, a Israeli journalist, Gil Tamari, decided to work his way in uh, and build it as a historic news scoop. The first Jewish-Israeli reporter to document the annual Muslim pilgrimage of Hajj. Uh, Robert Fantina, your thoughts on on this story? Well, the fact that uh, an Israeli sneaked in there uh, when it's only open to Muslims, is is just doubly bad because Israel has such a, a terrible record concerning its treatment of Muslims that this is just the same thing. They don't care about uh, Islam. They don't care about its traditions, its customs, about the people who practice it. And this is another example of that. This is flaunting and disrespecting the Islam religion to a, a huge degree. And the fact that this reporter and the station works for apologized is meaningless because they also called it a great accomplishment and they referred to it as great journalism. It wasn't great journalism. It's, it's, it's not even sensationalism. It's, it's a criminal act, actually. It's so disrespectful, uh, so blatantly disrespectful. And the fact that this journalist, so-called journalist, wasn't fired and that this, his employer wasn't fined and they didn't issue a groveling apology, just shows that Israel and all its minions don't care in the least about uh, Islam or Muslim. Let me ask you this. I'm going to throw something out at you. You know, I remember, and, and I'm going somewhere with this, I remember a while back in Syria, uh, President Obama and the Russians and made this deal in this particular area of Syria where there was going to be like a free zone where people could travel or whatever. And within days, 
the U.S. military went in and bombed the Syrians in that area and, and, and screwed the deal up. And eventually John Kerry admitted it and said, well, there were some people in the Pentagon that weren't on, on board. Here's where I'm going with that. Saudi Arabia and Israel are working to repair, fix whatever their ties, you know, the U.S., the Abraham Accords is trying to do all this kind of stuff. Is it possible that there are those in Israel who would look at that and say, now this would really infuriate the, um, the Muslims, infuriate the Saudis. The timing just seems so blatant to me that this is something you could do to really screw this up. Not that I'm for it or against it. Am I too conspiratorial to suspect that? Uh, no, it's a very interesting interesting concept that uh, normalization with uh, another major Muslim country may be too much for some Israelis to, to bear, that they have to have uh, cordial relations with people who they see as lesser than them, who they feel they can kill at, uh, just on their whim. And now their government is attempting to establish relationships with, with the largest uh, Islamic country in, in the region. It's very possible, uh, it's not something I've considered, but it's possible this was intentionally done to uh, help sabotage those uh, possible alliances, alliances which are in uh, only in Israel's interest and in nobody else's, certainly not in, in the interest of the Muslim countries. Uh, Miko Peled right, has a piece in Mint Press, A History of Israeli Destruction of the Two-State Settlement. Uh, I think it's a very good piece. He starts it with it in 1947. Uh, it's a, it's a uh, kind of a historical chronology. Uh, your thoughts? He writes, there have been several versions of the two-state idea. The one that came closest to being implemented is known as UN Resolution 194 or the uh, Partition of Palestine. It almost became a reality in that the UN voted on it and accepted it. In 1947, but then even before the ink was dry, the Zionist forces embarked on a sweeping campaign of ethnic cleansing to rid the country of its peoples and to take over such a land, as much of the land as possible. Your thoughts, uh, Robert Fantina? Uh, It's so ironic that um, Jewish people in Europe had just come out of uh, an unspeakably awful situation. They were slaughtered uh, in numbers of, of approximately six million and yet they were willing immediately after that to do the same thing to another group of people, uh, which they've done for the last uh, 77 years. The, uh, the idea of the two-state solution, which almost came to being, as, as Mr. Pellet mentioned, in 1947, was still unjust. The entire idea of taking part of a country and establish, driving people out of it and establishing a new country on that land is completely un- unjust. So there's never been a just concept of a two-state solution. You know, Robert, recently Joe Biden was there mouthing the words about a two-state solution. And it just seems to me that it, that's like a hold off now. It's like, yeah, I'm for a two-state solution. Now let's get back to the, um, to the to the duties of oppressing, murdering, slaughtering, and keeping down the Palestinians. So when Joe Biden says he's for a two-state solution, as he meets with the Zionist, as he proclaims himself a Zionist, as he does everything to show that he's opposing, to me, it's almost to me. It's almost an insult to say that. Well, in fact, Garland, uh, to your point, not only did Joe Biden say he's for an, a two-state solution, but then he said to the Palestinian, to to Mahmoud Abbas, he said, 
but I don't really see the time is right now for that to be implemented. So go ahead, Robert. Yeah, the the thing that Joe Biden seems to think no one knows is that the, a two-state solution could be, could be implemented tomorrow, and the United States could do it. All the U.S. has to do is cut off all funding to Israel and, and tell the Israeli government, we'll continue funding again once you adhere to international law. That means removing the blockade of Gaza, um, vacating all the illegal illegal settlements. So there's something like 600,000 people living there. I'll remove all the roadblocks and uh, establish uh, equal rights for everybody living within Israel's borders. So Biden could accomplish that. Just cut off the money. That's all he needs to do. But he says the time is not right. The time's not going to be right uh, in his view ever. But the time has been right for the past 70 years. It's simply a matter of one rogue apartheid nation not being not being willing to to adhere to international law on any level any level whatsoever and biden who is always talking about he and another government official talking about the justice of the united states and the democracy of the united states and the free of the united states and yet the u.s government supports and is completely complicit in all of israel's crimes against humanity and violations of international law you know, there's a there's a saying uh, that the Zionists love to repeat, a land without a people for a people without a land. And one of the things that Miko highlights in his piece, he says the Zionists took the cities and made them theirs. They took the crops in the fields and the fruit in the orchards. They stole the money from the banks untold millions worth of vehicles and agriculture equipment and made it all theirs. Basically, they stole a country. It wasn't that they stole land. They stole a functioning, existing, viable country. Yes. And when Zionists say uh, a land without people, that's because they do not consider Palestinian humans. Right. So, of course, there was, there was no one there because they're only Palestinians and they don't see them as humans. This in itself is so racist. And even if one wants to give the Israelis, the Zionists, the benefit of the doubt and say, OK, they do recognize the humanity of Palestinians, which is giving them a huge benefit of the doubt. It's simply a lie. They drove out uh, close to a million people. They killed tens of thousands. They bulldozed hundreds of uh Palestinian towns, they, they had no respect for anything, no respect for mosques or uh, cemeteries that were sacred to these people, uh, to their homes, their schools, their hospitals, all just bulldozed, and the people driven out with no recourse, no, uh, no decision, no voice in the decision that drove them out, no recourse and no recompense. You know, I want to ask you this, too, because there's been a lot of uh, discussion about the um, Shireen Abu Akla murder by Israel. But when I think about Joe Biden's trip, right, well, they, they talked about Khashoggi. But if you look at these three, the three countries, a journalist, Khashoggi, 
uh, they cut him to pieces and with a bone saw. That was one 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 leg of the three-legged stool. The second leg is Israel. Shireen Abu Akla. Uh, they shot her, an unarmed journalist doing her job. And then we go back to the United States and Julian Assange, where they said, hey, you know what? We were thinking about killing him. We were just going to kidnap and murder him, just like the mafia. And we decided, you know what? Eh, let's just go ahead and we'll prosecute him and we'll bring him back to, back to jail and do it the long way. So when you look at... Those three things, any thought that the United States would speak up for Shireen Abu Akla, any thought that they would speak up for Jamal Khashoggi has to be viewed through the lens of the process, the persecution of Julian Assange. And then it all all three things make sense. Your thoughts? Yes, I agree. Uh, Julian Assange, his crime was exposing U.S. crime. And that's something that just can't happen. Uh, The U.S. has to. U.S. government wants to keep its crimes secret, although they, they're not secret. But Julian Assange exposed them to a, to a great, to, to, in more detail than was previously known. So he was a journalist. He's been persecuted for years by the United States, and that's only getting worse. Uh, um, Shireen Abu Akha, Akha excuse me, was shot under her ear. She had a helmet and a bulletproof vest. So this could... The possibility of being an accident is just one in a million. It was obviously a sniper. Every independent investigation says it's a sniper that did this. Uh, and, of course, Jamal Khashoggi was cut to pieces. The, even U.S. intelligence says that was uh, ordered by uh, Mohammed uh, bin Salman himself. So the fact the United States is going to persecute uh, a prominent journalist, one can't wonder why it won't object the murder of other prominent journalists in other countries. It's freedom of the press is not something that the United States is interested in in its own country or, or uh, internationally because it could possibly expose crimes the U.S. is committing on a regular basis and crimes that its allies are committing on a regular basis. So the, the three situations are very closely associated. We have just about a minute and a half left. And uh, Chris Hedges writes, NATO, the most dangerous military alliance on the planet. He says it has become the most aggressive and dangerous military alliance, that it's basically there for billions in profits for the arms industry. Robert Fantina. Yeah, it's, again, it's very true. The uh, NATO should have been uh, dismantled when the, uh, when the Soviet Union uh, uh, fell and, and communism ended there. Uh, the major threat that the United States said NATO existed for no longer existed. But ironically, NATO has only expanded since then. And that's probably because the U.S. goes around the country warmongering, causing problems, uh, increasing tensions, and causing risk of war. So countries such as now uh, Sweden and Norway, they want to join NATO because they're their governments are afraid of the monsters that the United States has created around the world. So uh, NATO is big business. Uh, weaponry is, is a huge, in, huge industry in the world. And the U.S. is a major supplier of weaponry in the world. So, of course, the U.S. is going to force mm-hmm. the wars so that the, the so-called defense contracts, which are just, just war makers, uh, can continue to make their profits. Robert Fantina, as always, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you very much. My pleasure as always.
Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. I'm back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. Ranil Wickri Masenji elected as Sri Lankan president. Will this bring peace and stability to the country? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a widely acclaimed speaker, writer, journalist, and political analyst. He has traveled extensively in the Middle East and in Latin America. His latest book is entitled Kamala Harris and the Future of America, an essay in three parts. Caleb Moppin, as always, Caleb, welcome back. Sure. Glad to be here, as always. So Sri Lankan acting president Ranil Rikri Masenji was elected today as the new president of Sri Lanka. We know that there is incredible uh, unrest. There's incredible uh, inflation in Sri Lanka. There is a lot of instability. Will this bring stability to this troubled country and, uh, well, island? I would think that the issue is not necessarily who's in power, but the underlying economic problems. The fact that BlackRock uh, put them in a situation where they were pressured to adopt uh, organic farming very rapidly. They didn't transition to it gradually, but they, they adopted it very, very rapidly in order to get their loans as part of their green credit rating. Um, and because of that, their crop output was significantly lower because they did not use chemical pesticides. Um, and that caused them a huge amount of problems. Uh, if you add to that um, the ongoing crisis that we're facing in the world right now with the rising cost of fuel and really the rising cost of everything, because, uh, you know, Jimmy Hoffa, the great Teamster leader, he used to say, if you bought it, a truck brought it. Mm-hmm. And when the price of gasoline goes up, everything goes up. And so they're being hit with this heavy inflation, plus their crop output was significantly lower than it has been in quite some time because they were basically pressured to rapidly adopt uh, these uh, these organic farming principles. Um, and as a result, uh, they've had a big problem in the country. And U.S. media has tried to blame it on China. Um, and that's just utterly deceptive because it's not China that forced this situation. China is not making the price of gasoline go up right now. And China is also not responsible for, for their crop failures. Well, in fact, to that point, the Washington Post has a piece, China has a hand in Sri Lanka's economic calamity. The beleaguered island, having to do with 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 China and and its relation to the to the debt. Why is this a specious or bogus argument? Well, if you look at the debt that has been incurred, it's because China is building infrastructure, and infrastructure in Sri Lanka is not the cause of the problem. Um, you know, and China has not imposed uh, regulations onto Sri Lanka requiring them to change how they grow their crops. Uh, or anything like that. Um, if you look at what China has been able to do, um, they've actually been able to uh, create new ports so that businesses in Sri Lanka can import products more effectively. Uh, they've helped some power plants to be built in the country, from what I understand. Um, they've been you know, financing infrastructure projects as part of the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. Um, and they're not, uh, they're not making any demands on, on Sri Lanka about how they 
operate in order to exchange for those loans. Um, so I, I think you can you can you know put the blame onto BlackRock and and other forces, but that's not the narrative we're getting in Western media. In fact, th- this really shows uh, exposes the the hybrid war against China that that we're involved in and. and if anyone has been following China's Belt and Road Initiative, China's win-win strategy, to blame China for this would would be totally out of character for their policy because China's been doing an awful lot to work with countries like Sri Lanka, not uh, impose incredible burden and cause or facilitate collapse in, that's what the IMF does. That's what the World Bank does, not the Chinese Investment Bank. Oh, absolutely. And uh, and it, it's really dishonest of our media to present it any other way. So you, you said at the open that th- this is not a matter of the individual, that this is really a structural problem. Uh, but when you look at Ranil uh, Rikri Masenji, he has been elected uh, he's been elected president. He's been prime minister six times, and he comes from a very old political lineage. So just looking at his lineage, not his politics, if there was someone who could step into the breach and bring about some stability, one would think it would be someone such as Rikri Masenji. Well, we will just have to see. I mean, it seems like some of the problems in the country are due to an, an entrenched elite um, that is in bed with the United States. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the country was drifting closer to China, um, and uh, it was drifting closer to China, but still very much tied in with American banks. And it appears that the role of social media in fomenting this unrest and, and pushing it in a direction that China can be the target uh, and, and pushing it in a direction of blaming China uh, that's that's been a very big role in this. There was going to be unrest. If you have this kind of economic catastrophe in any country, there's mm-hmm. going to be unrest. Mm-hmm. Uh, the question is, who has the mechanisms to to nudge that unrest in the direction that will benefit them? And I think right now the United States has a very effective means of doing so with social media. Another story out of Newsweek, China decries monthly provocations as U.S. warship transits Taiwan Strait. The Chinese military accused the United States of fresh provocations today after the U.S. Navy publicized a warship's transit through the sensitive Taiwan Strait for the sixth time this year. Caleb, one can only, to use the the metaphor of swatting the hornet's nest, one can only swat the hornet's nest so many times before the hornets get angry and the swatter gets stung. Indeed, and China has a very large military. China has only only one overseas military base. It's located in Djibouti, uh, but they do you know, patrol the Pacific Ocean, which is their backyard, and they do patrol it. Uh, and uh, the United States continues to engage over the, and it's not anything new, over the past five or six years, maybe even past decade, we've seen provocations by the United States in the Pacific and the South China Sea. This is not good because at some point you will get a response. Quote, the U.S., the U.S.'s frequent provocations and grandstanding fully demonstrate that it is a disruptor of peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait and a maker of security risks in the Taiwan Strait. This is according to uh, Colonel Shi Yi, a spokesperson for the People's Liberation Army Eastern Theater Command. You compound this sixth 
incursion into the Taiwan Strait with Nancy Pelosi now talking about going to Taiwan again, swatting the hornet's nest. And one would wonder, and, and this is, you don't have to take this uh, extrapolate too far out. It would be very easy for China to sink a ship in the Taiwan Strait. And one could make the argument they would have every reason to do so. I'm not advocating that. The response to that would not be a good one for the world, but it wouldn't be with with it wouldn't be outside the realm of possibility for China to take such such action. No, it wouldn't. And uh, it may be the United States is to some degree or other trying to provoke China to do that. Um, you know, we know the United States very much provoked the situation going on in Ukraine, and then they've used that to mobilize kind of global uh, isolation of Russia. Um, and it appears that uh, they may be trying a similar strategy. If they can provoke and create a situation where China can appear as the aggressor um, in a situation in the South China Sea uh, regarding Taiwan, uh, if they can do that, uh, then they can they can effectively isolate China. I just am curious how that will work because China is much much more heavily involved in the global economy than Russia is. Russia is an oil and gas exporter, but China is a major industrial power and it's financially tied into so many countries. Uh, so uh, you know, being able to isolate China on the global markets will be much more difficult. I think. Orinoco Tribune has a piece by Pepe Escobar. Russia and China haven't even started to ratchet up the pain dial. The suicide spectacular summer show currently on screens across Europe proceeds in full regalia. Uh, much to the astonishment of virtually the global, the whole global South, a trashy, woke, Goddard-Demung remake with Regarian grandeur replaced by twerking. Your thoughts on Pepe Escobar's analysis? Well, look, I, I think that it is true that right now the goal of Russia and China is de-escalation. Um, and if their goal were to change and they were to go on the offensive, we would definitely feel it here in the West. And I think what Pepe Escobar is getting at is that, uh, that it's very clear that the energy and the desire to stir up conflict is coming from the West. And uh, if China or Russia went on the offensive, uh, the consequences could be much more catastrophic than we realize. You know, I appreciate your your mentioning this because uh, when I listen to President Putin speak, when I when I listen to Sergei Lavrov, a I hear very serious people with a clear understanding of history talking to the world. When I listen to Joe Biden. When I listen to uh, Tony Blinken, I hear two people with very limited un historical perspectives talking to themselves, talking to each other, talking for domestic consumption. And, and I used to always tell my students, when you're listening to, a, to, to speak, to, to international figures speak, you must always remember who the audience is, and in many instances, they can be speaking to multiple audiences within the same speech. But again, when I hear Putin, when I hear Lavrov, when I hear President Xi Jinping, I hear serious men who understand history talking to the world. Biden et al. seem to be talking to themselves. 
Indeed. I mean, generally, when I hear the United States speak before the U.N. Security Council, uh, I don't hear the United States ever address or rebut any of the points Russia makes. I hear them just uh, refer to whatever Russia says as being false, don't believe a single word they say, and repeat the standard party line. And Russia will get up and meticulously prove everything that they are saying, uh, bring documented evidence. And the United States and their allies seem to depend on the world not ever listening to the other side. They know that Western media is never going to give a platform to the other side of the story. So they just kind of assume that before the audience they're performing for, their domestic audiences, uh, they'll be able to win the argument without addressing any of the points. And it's kind of disturbing to watch because, you know, a debate generally has two sides of it. You know, I mean, if you're going to have a debate, there needs to be a back and forth. Uh, but there's not much debate going on. Russia and China have worked very hard to very carefully make their case. The United States gets up and accuses them of just being liars, don't believe anything they say, and repeats the standard line as if nothing else has ever been said. And it also really appears as though those who are directing U.S. policy or are at least articulating it are believing their own press clippings because – Particularly when you look at the Ukraine, it, it you know you hear oh the Russian army has stalled here, the or the Russia is having a problem there. Not really understanding, as Pepe Escobar points out in his piece, that Russia is using a fraction of its military potential resources and state of the art weapons. So to his point about turning up the pain dial, uh, who was it that said we have yet begun to fight? <laughs> Indeed. Caleb. Indeed. I think it was John Paul Jones who said we okay. have yet begun to fight. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it seems pretty clear that things could get uglier a lot quicker. Um, or, I'm sorry, things could get uglier a lot quicker. Um, I think that it's important to acknowledge this, um, and I really hope that cooler heads in Washington will prevail and that this, this game of seeing how far we can push this international tension, that this game uh, de-escalates soon because the consequences for the global economy are quite catastrophic at this point. Caleb Moppin, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Sure thing. Always a pleasure. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Leo Flores writes in Code Pink, It can't be illegal to help a people. The persecution of Alex Saab. Quote, It's not a crime to fulfill a diplomatic mission. It's not a crime to evade sanctions that are harming an entire country. It can't be illegal to help a people. Uh, Camilla... Uh, Fabri Saab made these impassioned remarks when explaining the situation behind the illegal arrest and extradition, the kidnapping, in essence, of her husband, Venezuelan diplomat Alex Saab. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He was a regional election observer last year for the Venezuelan elections, co-founder of North Florida and Hands Off Venezuela, and president of the Hands Off Venezuela Club at the University of North Florida and author of the newly released book, The Diplomat, Alex Suarez. As always, welcome back. 
Thank you for having me. Um, and just in case, uh, the book, uh, The Diplomat, which is on the Alex Saab case, um, is available on Amazon um, under my pen name, which is Al R. Suarez. So, so that's A-L and then uh, middle initial R without the period. And, of course, my last name is uh, Suarez or Suarez, which is uh, S-U-A-R-E-Z. For those that are trying to find it, um, it's also available on Kindle. So uh, Camilla Saab made these impassioned remarks, and it seems very simple. It, it can't be a crime to fulfill a diplomatic mission. That's why they people have diplomatic immunity. It's not a crime to evade sanctions that are harming an entire country. Your thoughts, Alex Suarez? Absolutely. And I think what I wanted to share with you um, is addresses that very um, issue. Uh, I wanted to, to share the uh, first paragraph uh, of the book, uh, Chapter 1, called Lawfare. Um, and it goes like this. Uh, lawfare, a term derived from English, but that is increasingly used in Latin America, is a combination between the word warfare and the law. It is a political term often defined as persecution under the guise of the law or the machinations of legality in order to pursue someone legally, it rather being persecuting as opposed to a legitimate prosecutorial process, therefore has a negative connotation. Not only have we seen in recent years these tactics used on Alex Saab, we've seen them used on the publisher, Julian Assange, on the environmental lawyer, later unjustly disbarred, Stephen Donziger, and so on. The term originated from the 2015 book, Lawfare, Law as a Weapon of War, by Ordi Kitri, no doubt read by Saab's legal advocates in Venezuela, like Indriana Parada or Leila Tajaldini. The term, was like, the term has likely been expanded on to be a broader scope uh, than the 2015 book. So yeah, that's that's addressed in in uh, in the diplomat. You know, um, Alex, if I remember correctly, here recently wasn't there a vote in Parliament in Venezuela to, um, if I'm not mistaken, either recognize or to reiterate um, Alex Swab's diplomatic status? Absolutely, there was a unanimous vote where even opposition parties uh, voted to back um, Alex Saab. And uh, his wife, who I dedicate the book to, and I met while I was in Venezuela, Camila Fabri de Saab, uh, you know, gave an impassioned speech, and a lot of Venezuelans were moved by that. I mean, this is the man who was pivotal to the CLAP program, which brought food to Venezuelan families and saved thousands of lives at least and defied U.S. sanctions. He found way through his business and his diplomatic connections to defy those sanctions and paid the price for it. Leo Flores writes, beyond the crucial issue of diplomatic immunity, the charges in case against Saab are clearly political. For years, the U.S. has gone after key figures in Venezuela, including putting bounties on President Maduro and others as part of its attempt to overthrow the government. This, to me, uh, when you take this and you add John Bolton's most recent admissions uh, to the equation, this really makes the United States out to be the rogue nation that it traverses the world claiming that other authoritarian leaders are. Absolutely. I mean, the United States is one of the few major nations on earth that is not a signator of the ICC. Uh, therefore, when it comes to international law, uh, it is a rogue nation. And actually, the United States threatened to invade The Hague had they ever tried uh, uh, to uh, bring to court any American for, for war crimes. What was the last nation to invade the Netherlands? Nazi Germany. So, you know, the, the United States feels that it's above the law, that the, the international law doesn't apply to it. Um, and even domestic law, domestic U.S. law, 
does not say that you can kidnap a diplomat in a third country because you don't like their politics or because they found a way to defy your illegal, according to the UN, unilateral sanctions against the Venezuelan people, uh, which, according to Desaya and the uh, and the UN, as of 2020, has killed at least 100,000 Venezuelan civilians. So it's a form of economic terrorism. I am not wishing this upon anyone. I am merely asking a hypothetical question to make a point. Nancy Pelosi is talking about going to Taiwan, taking a uh, delegation to Taiwan. What would the United States do if the Chinese were to kidnap Nancy Pelosi in Taiwan? Is that am I is that a stretch for me to ask that question in the context of Alex Saab? And, and, you know, what Pelosi's done for this country is nothing in, in comparison what uh, Alex Saab's done for this country and his advocacy and his saving of the Venezuelan people. I don't think in Pelosi's political career that she's ever done things like Alex Saab has done for the Venezuelan people. So you can imagine how uh, angry the Venezuelan people and the Venezuelan government that he represents are, the fact that he was kidnapped and tortured and, and treated the way that he was treated. You know, let me ask you this. If you could, there may be some people listening who don't know a lot about Alex Saab. We do know, you know, it's clear he's a he was a Venezuelan diplomat. He was traveling around the world doing business on behalf of Venezuela to help them with a, pr a food program that they have to um, feed the poor. And he was helping to get around U.S. sanctions. If you could uh, once again kind of reiterate how that happened. He was in an African country. He got he got arrested. Could you, you know, for our, our listeners who don't know, you know, let them know how that arrest happened and what, what you think about the, the way the arrest went down. Absolutely. On Cape Verde Island, he was kidnapped the first time. The second kidnapping is when they, uh, quote unquote, extradited him to, to Miami. I attended the arraignment and the hearing down there. But, uh, you know, in Cape Verde, you know, I talked to, uh, to comrades that went there to try to see him uh, that had come to help observe as well um, in Venezuela. You know, Cape Verde uh, is part of the African Union, and they've been isolated diplomatically from the African Union. The African Union, you know, had voted for Alex Saab to be released, and of course, Cape Verde did not uh, succumb to that. They they succumbed to U.S. pressure, um, and uh, once uh, switched over from the Trump regime to the Biden regime, they they brought him to to Miami. Either way, they're persecuting, not prosecuting, without evidence, a diplomat against uh, diplomatic immunity. And that sends, sends a dangerous president for diplomatics all over the world. Switching gears a bit, Consortium News has uh, a story, The Failure of Sanctions, and it's by uh, Umberto Marquez. Economic sanctions against countries whose behavior is reproached by the West operate as punishment Although they fail in their declared political objectives and in cases such as Venezuela, the contrast is clearly on display in the windows of high-end stores that sell imported goods. Uh, in terms of the larger context of sanctions and as um, Alex Saab's wife talked about, it can't be illegal for or to evade sanctions that are harming an entire country. Talk about this in the broader context of the sanctions regime. Sure. If you compare the figures of the size of the Venezuelan population within Venezuela itself, which is approximately 28 million people, just to give you an idea, 100,000 deaths. And of course, that's higher now. It's been two years of ongoing sanctions since the UN conducted that investigation. But if you just count the 100,000 um, in contrast to 28 million people with our population, it would be the equivalent of killing 30 million Americans. 
And for those who know World War II history, 30 million is the same amount of Soviets that were killed by the Nazi onslaught, more than the other nation. So can you imagine a country sanctioning us into killing 30 million Americans or more? That's what's happened to Venezuela. And the Venezuelan people are, are rising above, and they consider Alex Saab a hero, even people that are part of the opposition that are not part of the government. And they're all demanding that he return home. You know, this is actually to be, be, be to be honest. This is the first I've really heard much of that. You know, I when I, when I was last time I was in Venezuela, I did meet with members of the opposition, and I, they did say they were tired of the sanctions too. That they were kind of backing away from the U.S. because the sanctions were hurting everyone. But I didn't know that the um, the opposition, which were the right wing forces, are now actually supporting um, the freedom. The, you know, freedom for Alex Saab. Has this been going on for a while? They can't attack Alex Saab even if they want to because Alex Saab has overwhelming support from the Venezuelan people. Uh, for example, I went on Amazon to look for other books about Alex Saab. There is no other book about Alex Saab in English. There are a couple in Spanish uh, that are anti-Alex Saab, terrible propaganda. I'm going to have my book uh, translated as soon as possible to Spanish, but um, you know, it's, those books are not successful because the people are not buying it anymore. In Colombia, where the left just won, and in Venezuela itself, of course, Alex Saab is originally from Colombia, but he has uh, Venezuelan citizenship. And talk about in terms of these the sanctions regime, it's really backfired. It's boomeranged. It is it has failed and could very well lead to, if not is already leading to, the ouster of leaders in Italy, in in Britain, in Germany. There are a tremendous number of European countries that are uh, experiencing incredible inflation. And so this sanctions regime is having a reverse, a boomerang, total opposite effect than intended. That's because Russia is not a global South country. They're trying to sanction a major country and it doesn't have the same consequences. It's actually hurting the West more than it's hurting Russia. The West is very reliant on Russian oil. Of course, the spike in uh, U.S. costs of oil was a direct result of the U.S. conducting an embargo on Russia. We remember in the 1970s, the Arab oil embargo on the United States and how that caused an inflation or raising of prices of, of oil in general. Here we have the United States' own moves causing it. It's just stupidity. Uh, they thought that, that, that the Russia was, uh, was going to fold. They thought Venezuela was going to fold. But the consequences were quite different, uh, and the imperialists did not get what they wanted. Alex, we only got uh, about one minute. It also seems that there's kind of a new order, and Venezuela is a major part of this new economic world order. It looks like it could be very beneficial for um, Global South countries. One minute. Yes, as uh, Latin America works with the East, with China, with Russia, they're progressing, and it's preventing a U.S. invasion or further meddling to hurt those economies. Well, let me again say, folks, uh, Alex Suarez is our guest. His new book, The Diplomat, is a, is a book about the case of Alex Saab. You can find it at Amazon. Again, The Diplomat by Al R. Suarez is his pen name. Uh, Alex, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. My pleasure. Folks, you've been listening to the Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened, and we look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out. We're out. 